The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwynn in your radio Let me set the table for you. We are dedicated to great taste on this show, constantly traveling the globe in search of the next big thing in food, sifting through ingredients, food news, pop culture, and bringing you emerging cuisines, gastronomic trends, and great culinary thinkers. So open your mind, expand your palate, and join me every Sunday to gain delicious knowledge on the wonderful world of food. This is radio's answer to culinary conversation and inspiration and all about living the best life. We're celebrating food's ability to feed the soul, talking travel, pouring wine, toasting glasses, and so much more. And whether you love to cook or love to eat, you are bound to find something you'll love on this show. I hope you'll visit chefjamie.com for my features, recipes, and cooking videos. Of course, my goal is to satiate your appetite. And it's summertime, deep in the heart of summer. The days are longer, the family's home more. And I love nothing more than a long, lazy weekend breakfast during these warm months. For me, the quintessential American way to start the day has to be pancakes, dripping with infused berry-laden maple syrup and topped with a crumbled pile of crispy bacon. Oh, so good. I hope I've made you hungry. You know, our prehistoric ancestors just may have eaten pancakes. There are analyses of starch grains on 30,000-year-old grinding tools that suggest that Stone Age cooks were actually making flour mixed with water and baking on a hot rock. But whatever the age of the primal pancake, it is clearly an ancient form of food. And I will say that here in America, we've made them famous. Now, in the American colonies, pancakes known as hoe cakes or Johnny cakes or even flapjacks were made originally with buckwheat or cornmeal. And the first all-American cookbook published in 1796, Amelia Simmons' American Cookery, has two recipes for pancakes. Thomas Jefferson, who was fond of pancakes as well, is said to have sent a recipe home for what he would call crepes made by pouring the thin batter onto a hot pan. The defining characteristic of the vast family of pancakes, however, is flatness. And flat as a pancake, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, has been a catchphrase since at least 1611. Amazing, right? Well, the traditional American pancake, I believe, chases the ideal of fluffy lightness, which is convenient, right? Because they always come in towering stacks. I love a short stack. Maybe you like a long stack. Um, But I will say that no matter how you stack it, the beautiful, fluffy, gorgeous texture of a great pancake is generally achieved with baking powder, which reacts with the acid in buttermilk to produce bubbles of carbon dioxide, which makes the pancake's 
uh, ethereally light until they're drowned in the syrup anyway. Now, I do use baking powder and buttermilk. In fact, the buttermilk is a substitute for milk in my basic pancake recipe. If you're anti-baking powder, you can rely on a larger than usual number of eggs and you can beat the egg whites until they're stiff and then fold them into the batter for extra fluffiness. Now, everything is better with butter. We know that, right? So I add melted butter to the mix as well. And then I do use butter to coat the griddle or the flat top or the big wide saute pan that I'm using because you get that richness of flavor. It's not absolutely necessary, but if you're going to have a big stack up pancakes, I believe you might as well go the distance. Now, as I mentioned, I love buttermilk. It has a little bit of a tanginess that I think is beautifully paired with syrup or anything that you choose to top your pancakes with, whether it be agave or honey or an infused maple syrup. I'll get to that. Now, everyone uses plain flour traditionally in their pancakes. Everyone except Ree Drummond, who, in keeping with her pioneer woman nickname, goes for a mixture of flour and cornmeal. I just saw her make her signature pancakes on TV this past week, and they looked really scrumptious. And I don't think there's much in the world that isn't made better by cornmeal. And they do become this sort of beautiful, yellow-hued miracle pancake, uh, a gorgeous golden color, a down-home sort of wholesome look. And I can imagine incredible texture. So I'll try it out and let you know. But here's what really matters when it comes to pancakes. You should never overmix the batter. Too much stirring nudges the gluten. And along with the protein in the eggs, it makes the pancakes tough and chewy rather than light and fluffy. I can also offer advice to you on the optimal temperature before you start to cook. Try to make sure that it's at medium-high heat, whatever pan it is or heat source that you're using. If it's too cool, you'll end up with a like a gummy pale pancake. If it's too hot, the pancakes tend to be too dark, of course, but unevenly cooked. And when it comes to flipping, I take the traditional approach. I wait until I see bubbles erupting on the surface, and then I flip. Now, if you want to up your pancake game, I have some ideas that will change the way you make a pancake breakfast. You take a standard recipe for homemade pancakes, which by the way, I'll post my master recipe on Facebook at Chef Jamie Gwen, on Twitter the same, and then you can always find a resource of recipes at chefjamie.com. And then you can try one of these many twists, whatever suits your palate. I love the idea of strawberries and cream. So I substitute cream for the buttermilk and I add macerated vanilla infused strawberries over the top. Now you could make nut butter pancakes by adding a couple of tablespoons of your favorite peanut butter or cashew butter or any nut butter, chunky or smooth. You could make apple cinnamon pancakes by caramelizing the apples and then adding a good dose of cinnamon to the batter. And then I like to top those with Greek yogurt. Then of course, lemon poppy seed. You can even add cooked grains to your pancakes. If you're looking to go the healthier route, add some cooked quinoa to the pancakes for extra texture. And then consider the toppings. Take everything out of the pantry. Like when you make an ice cream social and everything you'd put on top of a sundae belongs on a pan 
pancake, don't you think? Bananas, chocolate chips, slivered almonds, toasted coconut. Ooh, bring it on. I'm just getting hungry talking about it. And of course, I love a lemon ricotta pancake with a blueberry maple syrup. I've posted the recipe as my weekly dish once again at chefjamie.com, and I hope that you'll check it out. I hope every week to make you a better cook in your own kitchen as well. So think like a chef. The feature is posted on the site and it's all about a new method, a technique or something that definitely will enlighten or enliven your culinary style. I want you to know, I believe wholeheartedly that brown butter is brilliant. Brown butter is one of those magical secret ingredients that enhances the flavor of just about anything sweet or savory. It has a rich nutty taste, the aromas out of this world, and even better, it is super easy to make. Now, in the French term, it's called beurre noisette, and all you do to make brown butter is you simply start by melting good quality, preferably European-style unsalted butter over medium heat in a small sauce pot. Now, I like to use a light-colored bottom to that pot so that you can keep track of the color as the butter begins to brown. And you swirl the pan to make sure that the butter's cooking evenly. As the butter melts, it begins to foam. And the color progresses from yellow to tan to a toasty brown. You get that nutty aroma. You take the pan off the heat and you let it cool. Now, when you transfer the brown butter, you can do so many things with it. I love the idea of brown butter brownies. I love the idea of using it as a substitute when you're baking. You can actually let it firm up or harden again. You can store it in the fridge. It lasts a couple of weeks and you can use it for all of your baking needs or spoon a little bit over a quickly grilled or sauteed filet of your favorite fish, spoon over pasta, over steamed vegetables, and you can blend it in your electric mixer with regular butter, and it is the best spread for dinner rolls you've ever had. Oh, it makes the ultimate butterscotch pudding as well. Use it as the base. And then share your best ideas. What do you do with brown butter? I'd love to know. You can always email me directly. It's Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. We could have a little private culinary conversation. Be sure to check out chefjamie.com for a few other things you won't want to miss as well. You're going to hear from Simon Majumdar, the acclaimed Food Network judge coming up, and we've posted his chicken korma recipe in Indian style on the website. Um, it's really an incredible one, and you can prepare it quickly. I did it for dinner a couple of nights ago, and it was a hit. You'll find my white chocolate macadamia nut crazy good cookies posted as well. And for a summer sip, try my watermelon mint punch. I think it's the ultimate make-ahead summer barbecue cocktail. Now, for those of you in Southern California, nothing says summer like a great barbecue. Well, across the country, too, right? But the epic barbecues, they happen at your house. And you know what? Smart and Final knows your type. Your happy grilling steaks for two or hot dogs for 52 for Little League, you're a barbecue hero. And all the more reason to stop by Smart and Final for everything you need at prices that you're sure to love. Smart and Final is better than ever. And I'm proud to say I shop there. They have the low prices of a super center, the big sizes of a warehouse club store, but the convenience of a supermarket without a membership card or a fee. And there are all kinds of party supplies that the other stores don't have either. It's really the stuff that barbecue heroes 
clothes are made of. So check it out. Find a Smart and Final store near you and Note that there are incredible specials going on this week at Smart and Final. For all you barbecue heroes, try Tips on Special for four ninety nine a pound, and you'll find their first street chicken leg quarters at $0.79 cents per pound. Plus, if pasta's on your menu, La Romanella pasta at $0.99 cents per pound. It's actually bronze die cut, and it uh, has that wonderful texture on the exterior that grabs the sauce. So... Start shopping at a Smart and Final store near you, would you, please? Find one at smartandfinal.com. And stay tuned, because we do have grand guests in your radio coming up. Simon Majumdar, as mentioned, the Food Network judge and world traveler, is sharing his culinary passion. I had some wonderful experiences with him on Cutthroat Kitchen. Remember that? And of course, Malbec is the new Merlot. You've heard all about it. It's a conversation for Onophiles coming up with Alex Garache. He is the Chilean wine importer and winemaker, and he is dishing on South American varietals. So stay tuned. You just might learn something. Sit down at your kitchen table and join me as the delicious conversation continues. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, perfecting your palate every Sunday. And yes, we do have the biggest culinary thinkers on this show. For the record, though, I am not a fan of this gentleman's culinary prowess just because he reigned me a cutthroat kitchen champion. He did serve as the judge for my proud episode, but it's his gastronomic philosophy that I admire most. He'll go anywhere and eat everything. He has traveled to 72 countries, written two books, and become a staple on the Food Network. His third book, entitled Fed White and Blue, which will chronicle his journey to becoming a true American citizen through his favorite subject, food that is, is due out in spring of next year. He's been named one of the top 50 food and drink journalists around the world, the number one UK blog, and you've seen his straight-faced and incredibly integrity-full judging, gracing the Food Network's Cutthroat Kitchen, Next Iron Chef America, and The Best Thing I Ever Ate. He's here to dish, and I am so delighted. Ladies and gentlemen, he is Simon Majumdar. Welcome, Simon. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for inviting me, and yes, thank you for getting my name so perfectly pronounced. I can't tell you how many different versions <laughs> of my name I have heard over the years, and you got it spot on. Well, so thank God bless you. you for that. Well, certainly. I've actually heard Majumdar botched many a time as well, <laughs> I, I will say. I love your story, Simon, and I knew it prior to having um, the wonderful opportunity of meeting you and working with you, but I would love for those that don't know your story to really hear about it you made a life change at 40 and you started on the road to explore the culture of food which has really taken you extraordinary places it has both kind of emotionally and physically taken me to extraordinary places yes Yes. i had a great first life as it was i was a book publisher and i was doing quite well in uh, the uk and then when i turned 40 and i had a bit of a nervous breakdown my mother had died I went through some very bad times, some very dark times, and food was really where I went for my happy place, for my rescue. Mm. And after a very, very dark night where I I have to say, you know, I'm lucky I came through it, um, thankfully, because I got more hungry than anything else and I decided I needed to cook, Mm. I decided to quit my job and go around the world to eat. And just to go and see what else was out there in this world, apart from 
staring at a desk and looking at spreadsheets, and I'm sure lots of people who are listening can uh, sympathize with that. And I was fortunate that I'd saved up a lot of money, and I spent my entire life savings, and I went to 31 countries in a year, and that ended up being my first book, uh, Eat My Globe. But that changed my life. I mean, not least because I met my now wife on that journey yes. and moved to the United States to be with her, which is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. Hmm. And because of that, I ended up almost by accident ending up on the Food Network. Hmm. And it's just been a magical few years. Uh, you know, I went through some very dark times and really food was the thing that saved me. So in a very hmm. sort of physical sense and spiritual sense, it kind of really nourished what I do now. I love that for so many of us who love this wide world of food, food is the culprit for so many things. And like you said, it brought you to settle in the U.S. to have this wonderful wife and family life. And it was very much a culinary exploration that brought you to that place. And I wonder where you would go back to visit. Like, what are the best memories from that year on the road when you wrote Eat My Globe? There were some wonderful experiences of places, of course, you know, so being in India and being on the tea plantations of Darjeeling, riding on mm. the Trans-Siberian Express, uh, being in Senegal or going to the Sherry Fair in Spain. I mean, there were dozens of them because I was on the road solidly for a year. But as much as it is still now, food is really the prism I use to meet people and as much it would be about going to meet people, there's a couple called Perti and the Princessa, who are an older couple who lived in the very far north of Finland, who invited me into their home and prepared one of the most incredible meals I've ever had in my life, where everything that we ate had been dug from their land or hunted on their land or fished in their waters. Mm. And it was just this magical, almost fairy tale meal. But it was really because of these people who opened their homes to me, as they do in the United States. They just open their homes because of food and, and show their generosity. And I'm a great believer, you know, we talk about the United States, and I said this the other day in an interview, you know, we find so many ways to argue with each other in this country, and it could be guns or religion or politics. And when you sit down with someone and you share a meal, all of those differences tend to disappear Isn't or they certainly true? become less important. Yes. And I always say it's very hard to have an argument with someone when you've got a mouthful of ribs. <laughs> and so I'm a great believer that food is an equalizer. And I love the idea mm. of traveling around the country and meeting people who are very different from me, culturally, religiously, politically, but just breaking bread with them. And I think food has that ability. So certainly on my first journey, it was all about meeting these extraordinary people who are now still my friends. They're part of my family. Yeah. I, I like to say that food definitely feeds the soul. What is the life of a Food Network judge like today after that incredible transformation that you made? It's a little crazy sometimes because <laughs> of my schedule, and I'm very fortunate, and I never complain about being too busy. Mm. And it's a real mixture of things. You know, obviously there's the filming. Cutthroat Kitchen has as you know, has become a terrific success, primarily down to its wonderful host, Mr. Alton Brown, who I'm honored to call my friend. Yeah. I always say it's Alton Brown's world and, and we just live and in it. And we live in it. He's quite an extraordinary human being and so hyper brilliant, Simon. I was very taken with that when I first met him. Oh, I mean, I, I stand there and, and watch Alton doing, talking about food and just the way he is on television. And it's like being at university. And it's one of the things people often ask us, you know, some of the chefs who've been on the show say, well, what, what is it you and Alton are talking about? 
Yeah, I always wanted to know too. <laughs> well, we spend all our time talking about food history, but it is like food university. Hmm. And I genuinely would put Alton up there with people like Jacques Pepin and Julia Child as, a, as someone who has educated America yes. on food. I just think he has this ability to pass on knowledge yes. without intimidating people. And mm -hmm. I think he's unique in that way. He's brilliant. I sound like I'm being slightly obsequious, but it's just that he is someone who I respect so hugely that I just love being on the same show as him. I consider mm -hmm. it a real honor. You've certainly made a name for yourself in the judging world. I think it's your training and tasting around the world that has made you a fair judge with a, an in incredible culinary basis. I always say to people that there are lots of different schools of judging because I, one of the criticisms I probably get most often, and I do sometimes just because I guess I'm a tougher character, I hope I'm always fair, but I am very direct. And I, um, but I always get people going, well, you're not a chef, you can't judge. And I go, well, no, I'm not, and I've never claimed to be a chef, but I've got good culinary training. And I think a lot of it is experiential, as you say. You know, I've invested in going and finding out what things taste like in Japan and Italy and Spain and France and the Philippines or you name, you name a country. And, you know, I've, I've probably been there or I'm planning to go there just because that's what I love to do in my life. And I think it's given me an experience so that when someone cooks something and goes, well, this is so-and-so from the Umbria region of Italy, and I go, well, actually, no, it isn't, and this is why, and the flavor profile isn't right. So I hope I bring a different style of judging that complements another style of judging. So it's a very interesting job judging. Um, you know, you've got to entertain the audience. You've got to try and be able to explain to the people watching why you think something is good or bad, and, and just going, well, this is yummy, isn't, doesn't mean anything. I, I so I always agree. try and articulate the reasons why I do it. And I think part of the other reason why people often think of me as a kind of tough guy or the toughest critic is because of the accent. And I know I have an accent that sounds like a Star Wars villain. And it, <laughs> and it does sometimes. Uh, I think things just sound a bit more villainous when I, they come out of my mouth than they do out of others. I hate to tell you, Simon, but it didn't scare me. And needless to say, it was a very proud win for me and quite a memorable experience. And with about 60 seconds left here, I would love for my listeners to gain further insight into the world of Simon Majumdar. So if you will answer these three culinary questions for us. Fire away. Okay. Your favorite breakfast, please, good sir. Scottish breakfast. So I love porridge, oatmeal. Mm. I love oatmeal with peanut butter and banana. Oh, thank you, Elvis. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to spice things up and you're cooking, what is your seasoning, your chili pepper, your spice of choice? Well, I'm half Indian, so no, my kitchen always has green chili in it, and I use that a lot. And I also use Kashmiri red chili powder, which is not so hot, but gives great colors. I wish I was seated at your table, I must say. And then last but not least, Simon, do you ever think you'll take a liking to truffle oil? I will never take a <laughs> liking to truffle oil. It is the single most loathsome ingredient on the face of God's planet. It's chemical. And I'll tell you one other thing. Every single judge, every single chef I know who's in, you know, in the Food Network, they all hate it. Yes. So if you ever want to win a competition, if anyone's listening and they're ever on a Food Network competition, hide the truffle oil. Hide the truffle oil from Simon Majumdar, FYI.
We appreciate that you keep us informed and entertained and satiated. And we look forward to the release of Fed White and Blue chronicling your journey of becoming a true American citizen, as you say, through food. And I hope you'll come back prior to next spring, of course, and highlight uh, the beauty of the book and, and allow us to better get to know you. It was my pleasure, Simon. Thank you. It was my pleasure, and I hope everyone just Mm. goes and has a great meal now and enjoys it. Well, we'll toast to you and your Indian meal today. Oh, I'm so envious. You can (laughs) learn more at simonmajumdar.com. It's Simon and M-A-J-U-M-D-A-R.com. You can find Simon on Facebook and Twitter as well and follow his culinary journeys. And again, Simon, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are sipping and savoring because this is where knowledge and inspiration is served up every Sunday. Viticulture is ever-changing, and on this show, we like to talk about grapes beyond the big six. And since the 16th century, Chile has been producing exquisite fine wines from European grapes brought over by the Spanish. As the oldest of the New World wine regions, Chile has a culture rich in a long, proud history of artisan winemaking. But when Alex Garache came to the United States in the 1970s, he noticed that Chilean wine was not available. He vowed to change that and was one of the first importers to introduce South American wines to the American public. 25 years later, his company is the leading American importer of South American wine. He brought Malbec from Argentina, Carmenier from Chile, and wines grown at high altitude from South America. And he has had an extraordinary impact on the wine world over the last 25 years, broadening all of our wine knowledge here in the U.S., He joins us live to share his passion, and I'm delighted. Ladies and gentlemen, he is Alex Garache, and he is in your radio. Alex, a pleasure to have you. Hi, Jamie. (laughs) My pleasure. Well, thank you. As you know, Alex, I'm a certified sommelier. We have onophiles or wine lovers across the country that are always looking to learn and increase their sellers and their knowledge, of course. And for those that don't know, you are known as the Chilean equivalent of Robert Mondavi. You put Chile on the map in the wine world. And I would love for you to share your story because you did the same for Argentina, but sure. you, you came to the U.S. to play soccer. So why right. wh- why wine? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I came to the United States on a soccer scholarship and I wanted to be the next Pelé or maybe Maradona. <laughs> <laughs> so my senior year in college, I was captain of the team. We were number one in the nation. And I got injured in the middle of the playoffs. Mm. One of those injuries that it took a long time. And in the meantime, I said, I graduated and I go, well, what am I going to do with my life now? And I, you know, in those days, I've always, I grew up with wine on the table. I was living in Northern California, mm. but you could not buy a bottle of wine from Chile. So I said, well, this could be a great opportunity to bring Chilean wines. Mm. And it was the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. <laughs> But it has paid off. Yeah. At the beginning, living near the wine country, near Napa and Sonoma, a lot of people said that whether I was not, that I was trying to sell Chilean wines in the backyard of the California wine industry. Also, you gotta remember in those days, 
inputs were kind of unknown, and there was not that many. Uh, the ones you probably remember, Ray Uniti or Lancer or one of those. So, and people didn't know where Chile was as well. One guy told me, where's Chile, South Africa? <laughs> I said, well, the south part of it is right, but not quite. <laughs> anyway, so at the beginning it was extremely difficult, and yes, I consider myself being a pioneer, introducing South American wines in the United States. Yes, and, and you've... I think, led a very slow, steady, consistent journey to bring these wines to the forefront. And I believe, and I think that Malbec appears to have won, that uh, Malbec clearly is the next Merlot. You are credited with the notoriety of Malbec in the U.S., and I wonder why you think it's become so popular. Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember introducing Malbecs uh, 20 years ago. And people would say, Malbec, that's a blend wine. No, it's, no, it's actually it's a grape. Oh, okay, but what is it like? Well, they use it in France. It's always been a blending grape to Cabernet and so on and so forth. But what happens is in Argentina, it, the Malbec is grown mostly in the desert, in Mendoza, which is the desert. It gets what they gain water, so the soils are really poor. And they gain water from melted snow coming from the Andes. So, and it goes beautifully there. So 20 years ago, nobody knew what Malbec was. It was like, what is that? And today, as we all know, it's become a huge varietal because it just, you know, it delivers great fruit flavors, dark fruit, red fruit, your soft tannins, the ripe tannins. And it's just a great, great wine. And people are just discovering, discovering that there is another varietal, there is another grape called Malbec that is as good as Merlot or Cabernet or or another or, or another one of these Bordeaux varietals. I think it has all of the virtues I love about different red grape varietals combined together, Alex. Yes. I love the soft suppleness of Malbec. I love the soft tannins, like you mentioned. I love the big fruit, depending upon the Malbec, the producer. But overall, it has a rusticity to it, a rustic, wonderful yeah. richness that is quintessentially Malbec. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I think one of the things that people ask me, and I, or I tell people when I'm selling Malbec, when I'm talking about Malbec, is, is so interesting because Mendoza is all about altitude. So we know it's the desert, basically. And because it's so dry, the luminosity is really strong. The temperature is pretty high. But then now you got a kind of a cool climate concept or a cool climate issue here. Because right. the higher you are, the cooler it gets. So you get different flavor profiles from valley floor or wines that come from a lower elevation versus a higher elevation. Mm-hmm. So you get different flavors, like you mentioned, that are really, really interesting. You know, that cool climate, Malbec versus another one. One is a little richer maybe in fruit and, and fat. The other one is more pepper and, and spices. And they're really different kinds. And it's all because of, especially here in Malbec, in Mendoza, I think the huge part is it had to deal with the altitude. Did everyone cross their eyes and look at you funny when you introduced the high altitude concept as well to your South American wine distribution, your sharing? Because you were very much early on 
in the elementary stages of introducing South American wines, one of the great advocates of high altitude wines. I credit you for having brought that term to many of our knowledge places. You know, at the beginning, I think everything was sort of piled up in one big, you know, stock there. I mean, so nobody knew much about it except that, oh, I like it. Uh, what is this? Mm. Oh, it's an Argentinian wine. It's called mm. Malbec. It's a, that's a variety. It's one of the Bordeaux varietals. So people bought it because it tasted good. It had good color. It had good aromas. And, and the price was reasonable. So, But as time went on and different investors came in and, and foreign investors and, and winemakers starting to develop a better, um, having a better understanding of the variety itself and the different areas where it could be planted, it just got only better. Only better. The knowledge right. grew. You mentioned price point, and I think it's very important to talk about price point and Malbec in the same sentence because the South American wines that you've brought to this country and distributed and shared and that have gained notoriety are most of them incredible values. And that's something that South American wines have going for them, no doubt. Yes. Especially in today's economy. Yeah. You know, you can get a really good bottle of wine for $10, $12, Mm -hmm. and and you'll be pleased. You know, for $10, $15, God, this is really good. And you can get 15 to 20 or 25, and you say, wow, this really over delivers for a $20 bottle of wine. Yeah, I know it really does. To get a $20 bottle of wine from either France or Italy, you name it, you're not going to get what you can get out of a Malbec for 15 or 20. So I think I love to find those discovery wines <laughs> that can really, you become a hero, you take it to a party or, or you open a bottle of wine, you buy it and say, oh my God, there's definitely worth spending $15 I'm, right. for this bottle of wine. The best $10 I ever spent. I, yes, right. I call that being a culinary hero, Alex, <laughs> yes. just so you know. If you've just tuned in, by the way, you're late. He is Alex Garache and we are sharing the virtues of South American wines and the very great increasing growth and and knowledge of the wonderful world of Malbec and the wines of Chile as well, Argentina, of course. And then uh, you mentioned winemakers uh, just a bit ago, Alex, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you have found soil here in the U.S., specifically California, that you feel produces exceptional, bold, rich, wonderful wines and have realized a lifelong dream of producing your own wines, the inaugural bottling of Garachi family wines with a very dear friend of yours and a relationship I know you hold near and dear with Paul Hobbs, and we would love to know about it. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, for years, I've been in business 29 years. I tell everybody I started when I was 10, but they don't believe me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so... Me too, Alex, me too. (laughs) You know, it was... Being in business for so long and being a wine importer, and living in California, I've been so many times in Napa and Sonoma and Paso and Santa Barbara, and I love California wines. And, I, and I've always been building brands for other wineries, and mm-hmm. I thought, you know what, it's time to do our own, to do my own, and um, build my legacy for my children. And, and so that being said, I said, I'm going to make the best Pinot Noir I can make in the United States. I'm going to make the best Cabernet I can make. In Napa Valley. So I, at the beginning, I was sourcing fruit, buying from the very best growers. I had great contact with really tiny little growers or, or, or brilliant growers, both in Napa and Sonoma. And, um, and I went to a dear friend of mine, Paul Hobbs, 
and uh, he works with a great team, another guy called uh, Julian Gonzalez. And I said, I need your help. I want you to make a couple of wines for me. I want you to make a Pinot, and I want you to make a Cabernet, and I want it to be the best there is. <laughs> so what is it going to take? Well, he said, other than money, patience, and a lot of work, and a lot of dedication, and a lot of everything, as you know. I mean, one, this is, you got to put everything, mm-hmm. your heart, your soul, your passion, your drive. So we sourced at the beginning some beautiful, beautiful fruit from Sonoma, especially from Paloma Gap, up in, um, in, uh, in, Sonoma, in the Sonoma Mountain area. Some really great pinots going there, and then sourced from Napa, and we did that as well. So Paul Hobbs and Julian Gonzalez are my winemakers, along with me. And uh, we make small amounts, I mean, just a few, couple thousand cases, six packs. So the whole idea was to build something of my own, something for my children uh, that I could enjoy. And, and living in California, I mean, come on, I need to have my own. Well, of course. So <laughs> it I doesn't wanted, get any better. I wanted better. to make something special. Sure. Will you please stay with us? We'll take a quick break. When we come back, there is more with the South American wine importer who has brought Argentinian and Chilean wines to the forefront here in the U.S. He is Alex Garache. I am Chef Jamie Gwen, and you wouldn't dare touch your dial now, would you? We'll be right back. Teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, continuing the culinary conversation with Alex Garache, his passion and spirit and his cultural experiences, having brought Chilean, Argentinian and South American wines as a whole to the forefront here in the U.S., He is the largest distributor of South American wines with his company, TGIC, and his Garachi family wines are making a name for themselves already here uh, in the state of California and across the U.S. Last year, we were lucky enough to buy a a small vineyard, it's 42 acres, in Sonoma Mountains, right by Paraloma, right right in Paraloma Gap, which is, to me, is brilliant. It's a brilliant place for the best Pinots. Mm. And uh, so we sourced from Gap's Crown, which is a fantastic vineyard, obviously the most expensive today as well. Yes. We bought it right right over the hill from them. Mm. So uh, actually, our vineyard is called Sun Chase, and, uh, because the sun is chasing the fog yes. in the mornings. And it's just a phenomenal. It grows some mm. beautiful pinots. So yes. we're mm. going to release our first next year. And we just bought also a vineyard, Meadow Rock, in Napa Valley. Uh, right next to Antica and Atlas Peak. Very exciting. So that way we're we're securing on our source of fruit, right. and we can say this is state bottle. So, but again, we're only going to produce the very best. Otherwise, you know, we're just not going to do it. I'd like to talk more about the South American winemaking style. What is the South American winemaking style that you're bringing to the bottle? I think I'm blessed and fortunate enough that when I started way back then, I was able to talk and research and connect and partner with the very best winemakers, such as Aurelio Montes from Montes Winery, such as Jorge Brichitali from Norton, Bodega Norton. Yeah. We have worked with some really great winemakers. It's really important. And people, they've been around and in the business for many, many years. So they got their own dirt, <laughs> meaning <laughs> their vines and, and state and, and they understand their soils, and, and I think there's been huge 
to be successful and, sure. and be able to deliver quality and uh, bring the best wines from South America. One of the things I love about South American wines is that they are immensely food friendly. Yes. So I can fire up the barbecue. I can make a, a rich, hearty winter stew or braise. I could open a pizza box and open a bottle of Malbec and be very happy. Yeah. There are beautiful combinations. <laughs> and I know you're a foodie, Alex, so yeah. we have to talk food. Absolutely. Um, Argentinian cuisine, the churrascarias around the world. Yeah. I know some of your favorite. Yes. Share with us, if you would, your favorite places to eat, let's say, around the world, or some of the best pairings as well for South American wines. Yeah, you need to understand one thing before I say anything else. When I tell friends or my distributors or clients, I think when you go to Argentina, be ready to have beef for breakfast, lunch, lunch and, and dinner. dinner right. <laughs> you know, and that's it. Because, and they're known for having some beautiful beef. There's some excellent Argentinian restaurants, and you can basically, they have all the way from sausages to blood sausages to filet mignon. And uh, obviously, you can eat different types of food, from pastas to to roast beef to sure. prime rib. So there is, you can combine easily because there's so many different flavors within beef in Argentina. I'm really quite admiring of your incredible success and the fact Thank that you. you started with nothing in your pocket yeah. from Santiago, Chile to here and what you've brought to the U.S., a very international perspective from world-renowned wines that you have represented and brought to the forefront. Yeah. And I wish you continued success with Garachi family wines, of course. And uh, we look forward to, to talking about Malbec more on this show. Absolutely. And, and in, you know, talking about, if I may, really quick, yes. you know, Chile and Argentina are so different countries in terms of winemaking because in Argentina it's continental influence versus so the Andes is the one that really makes the entire wine country. In Chile it's more Mediterranean, just like California. So when you think about Chile, you got 3,000 miles of coast. You know, this is the Pacific Ocean, just like California, but in the Southern Hemisphere, and 3,000 miles of Andes, so you have a more variety of varietals, more variety of grapes being grown in Chile, and so the influence now, and because you have great Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, and having the coast, there is a lot of seafood, so, if, so Chile is so different than Argentina, and you can mix food and wine, yeah. it's just so different, mm -hmm. basically you can have seafood with white wine in Chile, you can have meat and red wine in Argentina. But you can also obviously add red wines in Chile. But it's just like California, but in the Southern Hemisphere. Always an advocate of South America, Alex. I love it. Uh, Great. Inspiring us to, to learn more, to do our homework, to yes. uh, what I think is the best part, taste our way yeah, around the travel, world. Travel there travel. as well. Yes, you, for sure. You be amazed and very, very pleased. From a dream of America to the American dream, he is Alex Garachi, and you can learn more about his family wines and his South American imports at garachifamilywines.com. It's G-U-A-R-A-C-H-I, familywines.com. Muchas gracias, Alex. Right, thank you. Thank you. We'll continue our conversation soon, I hope. 
All right. Likewise. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. Whether you're thinking about Sunday supper tonight or planning your week's meals, I hope you love listening to this show. I'll continue to share my fun food discoveries, great wine pairings, and inspirational advice from our team of experts, chefs, food lovers, and those that feed your soul in so many ways. I'm always serving up seconds with recipes galore at Chef James com and on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen, where you'll find this last bite. I like to leave you with my last ounce of culinary information in a three or four ingredient source. This one is actually just one ingredient. You heard me right. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, correct? Well, when life gives you cinnamon rolls, you make cinnamon roll waffles. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I talked about breakfast and I dished on pancakes at the beginning of this hour. Well, cinnamon rolls are not just for breakfast anymore. They can be topped with ice cream for dessert or they could be served as a brunch treat when you bake them in your waffle iron. It is ridiculously easy. You will wonder why you haven't done it before. And while I like to make everything from scratch, this one ingredient recipe is so deliciously yummy, I couldn't help myself. You take a tube of cinnamon rolls, buy the best quality that you can find, open the container and separate the rolls and set the glaze aside, or better yet, make your own. It's just powdered sugar and water. I like to add a little bit of almond extract or even vanilla extract as well. Then heat your waffle iron, spray both plates top and bottom with nonstick cooking spray and place one of the cinnamon rolls from the tube in the center and close the lid to the waffle iron. You're going to cook for about three minutes until both sides are golden brown and the roll is completely baked through. And then repeat with all the remaining rolls. Drizzle whatever fabulous glaze you've made. Could be even maple syrup over the top. And you have easy cinnamon roll waffles. One ingredient. You heard it here. I'll post the idea again on Facebook at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll hope that you'll join me next Sunday as the culinary creations continue. It's eating and drinking like you've never done before to see what's cooking online. Once again, chefjamie.com. Until next weekend, I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.